It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Werzer. State officials are projecting a $3.5 billion surplus for the budget ending in 2025. We'll hear how they'll use it and future financial pitfalls. City government is considering taking on global politics. We'll talk to an expert about why city councils might call for a ceasefire in Gaza. It's Leap Day, which is a special day for geocachers. We'll talk to an avid geocacher about his plans. We'll hear the little told story of Eliza Winston, a woman who was freed from slavery in Minnesota. And a woman tells the story of kind strangers after a running accident. Of course, Thursday is our show, and of course it means sports. We're going to get the latest on college basketball superstar Caitlin Clark. All that and a whole lot more coming up right after the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A federal judge has temporarily blocked a controversial Texas law that would have allowed local police to arrest people suspected of being in the state illegally. It also allowed the creation of a state deportation force. The Biden and Trump campaigns are making dueling appearances in Texas today, punctuating the prominence of the border security debate this election year. Earlier, President Biden told reporters that there probably won't be a temporary ceasefire in Gaza by Monday, but said he remains optimistic that one will happen. At the White House, Biden was asked about the latest news from Gaza, where there were reports of more than 100 people killed and scores more injured. He said he was waiting to learn more details. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was sharply criticized by Republicans on the House Armed Services Committee for failing to inform the White House and Congress that he was hospitalized on two occasions in December and January. Here's NPR's Tom Bowman. Secretary Austin once again said he took full responsibility, saying, I did not handle this right. That did not calm House Republicans who complained no one on his staff was being held accountable. Austin went into the hospital on December 22nd for prostate surgery, returning for complications on January 1st. On both occasions, his duties fell to his deputy, Kathleen Hicks. Austin said he transferred those duties to Hicks, but did not want to burden President Biden with his condition. Austin said his chief of staff, Kelly Maximan, first informed National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on January 4th. Austin was in the hospital. Tom Bowman, NPR News. Russian President Vladimir Putin has delivered his annual State of the Nation address in Moscow. The Russian leader insisted today that Russia would stay the course in Ukraine while issuing warnings to the West. We have more from NPR's Charles Maines. The Kremlin billed this speech as Putin's vision for Russia ahead of upcoming presidential elections in which he faces no serious competition for another term. In fact, the Kremlin leader made no mention of the vote. Instead, Putin insisted Russia would emerge both victorious in Ukraine and thrive economically at home. Putin also issued stark warnings to the West against deeper involvement in the war, saying NATO forces on Ukrainian soil could lead to the destruction of civilization. The Kremlin leader also insisted his country was united behind the war effort, even as independent polls show nearly half of Russians support peace talks and a majority couldn't name anything the invasion of Ukraine had achieved. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The U.S. House is expected to advance a short-term government spending bill as Congress approaches the first of two deadlines to keep the government fully operating. Wednesday, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson and Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer reached a deal to extend the looming deadlines to March 8th and March 22nd. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. 
Other contributors include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. Around Minnesota right now, skies are partly to mostly cloudy. Highest today near 30 in the north, low 50s in the south. At noon in Worthington, it's 45. It's six above in International Falls and outside the Stomping Grounds coffee shop in Stables, it's 27. I'm Kathy Worzer with Minnesota News Headlines. 2,000 security guards who work in buildings across the Twin Cities reached a tentative contract agreement with employers last night, days before they had planned to strike. Their union, SEIU Local 26, says the agreement includes additional holidays, pay floor increases, and retirement accounts. The agreement averts a planned walkout by those security guards Monday. But about 4,000 other union members, including commercial janitorial workers, have not reached agreements, and they still plan to strike. Fourteen people have been cited for trespassing after they climbed the fence surrounding the home that Governor Walls and his family are temporarily living in. There was a rally of about 100 people last evening outside the East Cliff Mansion, with protesters calling on the governor to divest state investments from Israel. The state patrol says they were cited and released. The State Board of Investment met this morning and did not comment on demands to divest. At one point, 14 people jumped the fence. Minnesota-based agri-giant Cargill was the target of the theft of hundreds of -of out-of-service laptops, and reportedly they were taken and resold on eBay by a longtime former Cargill employee. According to the Star Tribune, Minnetonka police say the man admitted to stealing the computers and put them up for sale on his eBay account. He had been fired by Cargill. Our top story, Minnesota still has a projected budget surplus. State budget officials presented their latest financial forecast this morning, and it projects a $3.7 billion surplus for the budget ending in 2025. That is up by about $1.3 billion compared to the prior estimate back in December. But there are still some potential tougher financial straits down the road. Our senior politics reporter Dana Ferguson was there. He joins us to discuss. All right, Dana, let's start with the big picture, shall we? Generally speaking, how is Minnesota's economy doing right now? State budget leaders say it's plugging along. The workforce continues to do well, and corporations overperformed expectations. Across the board, that meant the state brought in more tax dollars than it forecast last year. And they expect that the economy will continue performing pretty well into the next two-year budget cycle that starts next summer. Listen to how Governor Tim Walz framed it. It is morning in Minnesota, and um, that's where we feel right now. Coming out of a pandemic, coming out of a global recession or potential for a global recession, Minnesota is well positioned for a future economy as any place in the world. Mm. All right. But much like the last budget forecast, there are these words of caution used about what's on the horizon. Did budget leaders have something to say about that? Yes, they noted that while the economy is strong and they expect that it will continue to do well in the next few years, there are steps lawmakers should take now to mitigate a potential deficit. Heading into the next budget, financial officials project an imbalance, not a deficit. That's because lawmakers last year approved a $72 billion budget. If lawmakers save most of the projected budget surplus this year, there won't be an impact to the state's bottom line. Here's Minnesota Management and Budget Commissioner Aaron Campbell. 
In order to protect the investments that were made in programs that serve Minnesotans, it will be important that policymakers exercise caution in enacting additional ongoing spending this legislative session. Hmm. Okay. At the last update in December, Dana, there was this uh, hesitation to use the word deficit. I noted that you mentioned it's an imbalance, not a deficit. That's according to state officials. But why are officials still shying away from the word deficit? Yeah, Campbell and others really made a point of noting that they're not yet predicting that the state will go into the red. And they emphasize that if current spending and tax intake numbers hold, the state will still have a surplus when the next budget starts. But as she mentioned, any ongoing spending approved this year could move the needle on that. And state legislative leaders have said they want to try to rein in spending. What did they say about this report? DFL leaders said they were keeping their sights pretty narrow this year to let many policy and spending changes past last year roll out. And the slightly higher surplus doesn't shift that by much. The governor and DFL leaders said the capital investment bill will still be the main focus this year. That's the one that finances construction projects around Minnesota through long-term borrowing and other types of one-time spending. Some policy and minor spending changes could also come along, too. But House Speaker Melissa Hortman says she'll be focused on keeping money on the bottom line. And, in her words, they won't make commitments they can't pay for. Okay. What did Republicans have to say about this? They said the Democrats put the state into this situation by passing such a hefty budget last year. And they said they'd press this year to get additional tax relief for Minnesotans and aim to block new spending. House Minority Leader Lisa Damath summed up that sentiment. When you look at your family budgets, if you are spending more than you are actually taking in, that results in a future deficit. So despite a continually growing economy, there still isn't enough tax revenue to meet the DFL's spending demands. This goes to show that we have a spending problem in Minnesota, not a revenue problem. Okay. So when you look at it all here, Dana, how much did this move the needle and what folks at the Capitol expected to do this session? What might the session look like? It really didn't change very much. Um, It's still hard to see lawmakers making dramatic moves on the budget this year after last session's big lift. Um, But one thing it did do is feed the political messaging. Each side is drawing on portions of the forecast to amplify their campaign talking points. Because at the end of the day, it's an election year and both parties are trying to present a different case to voters. All right. Dana Ferguson, thank you. Anytime, Kathy. Dana is NPR News' senior politics reporter. St. Paul City Council has yet to formally debate a resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Councilmember Nelsie Yang tried to bring a resolution up at last night's meeting, just as Council President Mitra Jalali adjourned. All right. Um, that brings us to the end of our agenda today. We thank visitors who came back to our chambers. Um, I will personally uh, chat with any constituents who want to connect with me. And with that, we are adjourned. President Jalali, I have, I have an item to put on. To we we just, to I'm sorry, we just adjourned, Ms. Yang. I'm happy to talk to you about it, though. You, no, I think that's, that's, 
That's really unacceptable. Ms. Yang, we, we actually are adjourned. I'm sorry. That's really unacceptable. People had filled the chambers in support of a resolution, and they protested the move to adjourn, as you heard. Yang also took issue with it, calling it undemocratic. But a spokesperson for Jalali said she was following normal procedure. She also said she signed on to a letter from public officials asking the White House to call for a ceasefire. This is all happening, of course, in a larger context as constituents demand their local leaders take a stance on what is happening in Gaza. Across the river in Minneapolis... A city council earlier this month overrode a veto by Mayor Jacob Fry to pass their own ceasefire resolution. Joining us right now to talk about this mix of local and global politics is University of Minnesota political expert Larry Jacobs. Welcome back. Good to be with you, Kathy. Well, Professor, all politics is said to be local. So why are city councils and other municipal forms of government being asked to weigh in on the situation a world away? Well, I think, you know, you look around the country, and certainly in Minnesota, you see very progressive groups uh, taking control of city government in particular. And the issue about uh, Gaza and Israel's uh, conduct of the war there has drawn the ire of many Democrats, especially um, the progressive wing and Arab Americans. Um, We saw that in Michigan earlier this week, and we are going to see it for sure in Minnesota on primary night on Tuesday. This is just another expression of that in the city council. The progressive wing has increased its power in Minneapolis, and we're seeing it force the issue. St. Paul, it's a different politics, different set of political traditions, and um, the city council is saying they want to focus on local issues um, with streets and parks and police and fire being at the top of that list. Um, we should say, though, that other city councils in Hastings also has passed a, a resolution. Um, some of these councils, Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, have passed resolutions in the past on the Ukraine-Russia war, the Iraq war, apartheid in South Africa. Why is what is happening between Israel and, and Hamas such a flashpoint? In, in St. Paul, it's like elsewhere, very divisive. And the St. Paul tradition has been to try to build some kind of consensus or broad agreement. That's not the case on this. And we've heard city council members say on this issue, they're getting very strong reactions, both from those pushing for the resolution for permanent ceasefire and those who oppose it. And so they're leery of getting involved. They don't want to get distracted. They want to focus on these local issues. They say many of the protesters are not even from the city. They're from out of the city, and they're not going to be bullied. Um, I wonder, you know, most voters uh, care about really one or two key issues, right? And and I would presume local elected officials can't risk alienating them because, you know, personal relationships are key to getting work done, right? Um, what what mm-hmm. of that? Yeah, and that's the part of the tradition in St. Paul that's less evident in, in Minneapolis. In St. Paul... For many, many years, there's been a tradition of trying to bring together the community. And the city council, even though many of the members are newer members, uh, talk about that. They don't want to kind of weigh in on the issue uh, particularly quickly when they know that it's going to you know, uh, spark an intense fight. Um, Jewish members of the community, um, those who support Israel, um, you may have real questions about what's going on. But they don't think this is the right way to pursue it, um, and they don't think it's necessarily appropriate. 
if you had a vote on the city council, now it's unclear if there would be a majority. And um, Mayor Carter has been very lukewarm about uh, this. He sees it as a distraction and as something that's just going to fuel uh, division and acrimony. So, yes, they're activists, they're pushing hard, they're loud, they're organized, but they're not necessarily uh, reflecting the politics of St. Paul. You touched on this a little bit. And of course, there are, there are, we should say, city councils all around the country who have weighed in on this or are weighing in on it, and they've passed resolutions or have decided not to pass resolutions. Are resolutions like this one maybe not productive? You kind of mentioned this. Might they create further division, create an environment where not everybody feels safe? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the issue. The activists feel that it's essential that their community go on the record on an international issue, which, you know, honestly, they're probably not going to have much of an effect, if any. Um, but they feel like this is an important moral statement. They want it. But in many communities, there's differing views. Um, and we see that in our national politics. We see it in St. Paul. And again, the city council members are hearing earfuls from both sides. Um, the side pushing back against having a resolution so far has not been very vocal, but I think we can expect them to get very vocal um, if the city council were to pass it and would face um, Mayor Carter. Is the White House looking at all this? What do you think? Uh, what do you think they're talking about behind closed doors there? I think the White House, frankly, has boxed itself in. It took such a strong position in the beginning. It first encouraged um, Israel to go full, you know, bore into this. It provided 2,000-pound weapons and a lot of other ammunition. Um, and now we're four or five months into the war in Gaza, and 30,000 people killed, according to the Gaza health officials. And its leverage does not appear to be great. Uh, the president has been making statements and privately uh, pressing the prime minister to find a ceasefire, and he's ignoring them. His political calendar is much longer off than Joe Biden, who's going to be facing voters now in the coming months. And then in November, Joe Biden's got a big problem. I think he's going to see in the coming weeks and months in the primaries a very strong backlash among Democrats uh, who are intensely opposing what he has signed on for. And will Republicans look at that as a weakness? I think Republicans are just delighted anytime Joe Biden is facing uh, heartache and, and division. And, you know, the, the election in 2020 was extremely close. It was decided by really just, uh, you know, 50 or 60,000 votes in a handful of states. So the prospect that the Democratic coalition is fracturing, that that some groups of voters may just sit it out because they're so disappointed in Biden, or may actually vote for a third-party candidate to, sh- to demonstrate their protest. Any of that probably uh, spells the defeat of Joe Biden. So, you know, this is probably one of three or four issues that are really haunting the Biden campaign and could well lead to uh, Donald Trump's election. Wish I had more time with you. Thank you, Professor. It's great to talk to you, Kathy. We've been talking to Larry Jacobs, Professor of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota. Some people think that I'm a big gopher show, but 
Time for our Minnesota Music Minute. This is Megan and the Bird Watcher with their song, No Joe. The seven-piece folk band is from Minneapolis. They have a concert tonight at the Dakota in Minneapolis at 7 p.m. Of course, you know, here on the show, we love history, especially Minnesota history. We have the Minnesota Now and Then segment. So let's talk about a little bit of history I bet you don't even know about. More than 160 years ago here in Minneapolis, a woman named Eliza Winston stood before a judge and won her freedom after spending decades in slavery. Her enslavers were vacationing in Minnesota, where she met abolitionists who helped her gain her freedom. In a new book... Our next guest points out how historians have paid more attention to those abolitionists than to Winston herself, leaving aside the story of her life before and after her brief but eventful time in Minnesota. That life includes time she spent enslaved by former President Andrew Jackson, an effort she made to get emancipated before ever setting foot in the North. St. Cloud State University Ethics Ethnic Studies professor Christopher Lehman is the author of the new book, It Took Courage, Eliza Winston's Quest for Freedom, out on April 16th, but he joins us early to talk about this book. Sounds fantastic, Professor. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is quite a story you have here. Can you tell us, just briefly recap, the life of Eliza Winston and the fact that she came to Minnesota and was emancipated? Right. Well, she was born around 1817, and at the age of five, she was sold to John McLemore, who was one of Andrew Jackson's best friends, and who was the husband of one of Andrew Jackson's wife's nieces. And in 1834, McLemore ran into some financial trouble and had to sell off all his people, but Andrew Jackson stepped in and made sure that the person who bought the Eliza kept her until Macklemore's youngest daughter was of age and married. And once Eliza was with that person, Kate Macklemore, Kate was willing to have Eliza work outside the house and even socialize outside the house. And she went to a church in Memphis that allowed her to worship with free African Americans and with people who didn't own slaves at all. So that was her first exposure to freedom. But then Kate died in 1848, and her husband died about four years later. And at that point, Eliza was shipped off to Mississippi. And it was in Mississippi where she lived on a plantation instead of an urban area. And she was caring exclusively for a woman named Mary Christmas. That was actually her name. And it was Mary who became sick in 1860 and chose Eliza to go with her and her husband to Minnesota to vacation. And in 1860, Eliza met a free woman named Emily Gray, who developed a plan with her to 
become free in Minnesota, which technically she already was. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that. I was I was wondering, uh, going back to um, where she started to go to church alone, did she at that point marry a free man, or was that later? No, it was in Memphis where she married a free man. Okay. And she had developed a plan with her husband and with Kate's husband to work off her freedom to, to pay for it through a job as a nurse, I think. And before Eliza and her husband could pay off this enslaver, the husband died, and then the enslaver died too. And mm-hmm. the Christmases didn't honor the promise that Kate's husband made. So she had been working to get her freedom since she ended up in Minnesota. Right. And there had been some friends of her husband's who had acquired some clothing for her in a suitcase or in a trunk for her to wear once she became free in Minnesota. So she took that trunk with her. But when she developed the plan with Emily Gray to be free while they were in the Twin Cities, Someone found out about the plan and then told the Christmases, and then they decided that they would take Eliza with them away from that hotel and then to a lake house over in Richfield. But her allies were able to track her down, and they were able to consult with a judge to bring her to his court so that she could plead her case before him. So the sheriff of Hennepin County went to the lake house brought Eliza back up to the courthouse in Minneapolis, and there she pleaded her case. Complicated, but interesting, quite interesting. So um, she was emancipated, yes, and what happened then? When she became free, the Southerners who had been vacationing in Minnesota that summer went in droves to the first steamboat they could back down to the south so that their enslaved people wouldn't try to go to the courts too. And that same night, people in Minnesota who depended on the tourism dollars of slaveholders caused a riot. They went to the house of Emily Gray and they went to the house of one of the local abolitionists. His name was William Babbitt. They weren't able to find Eliza, though. She was safe in another abolitionist home. And she stayed in Minnesota for a couple of months. And then I think around November of 1860, she relocated to Detroit. And that's where she spent the rest of her her years in freedom. Wow. You really pieced together a lot of her story, which is unusual in that um, it is difficult to find historical records uh, for folks who were living in slavery. So how did you do that? Well, the only piece of evidence that was written in Eliza's own words was her affidavit. So what I tried to do was to see how much of Eliza's story in her own words was accurate. And the first thing she says is that she was kept by a man named Macklemore and then his daughter, whose married name was Golson. So I tried to find in Ancestry databases couples who were named Macklemore and Golson. And... I found a few, and I looked at other sources to make sure that that was the right couple. And when I looked at deeds of sales for people who were named Golson or Macklemore, I found the deed 
that had Andrew Jackson's name on it, which caught me totally by surprise. So then I had to figure out, well, how does Macklemore relate to Andrew Jackson? And then it just went on from there. How in the world did you even start down this road? I mean, uh, Eliza's story, as you say, the abolitionist part of the story has been well told. Uh, Eliza's not so much. But there was, there's always something that sparks the interest of a researcher. What was it for you? Well, it was the fact that she had been kept in Minnesota in slavery, even though, legally speaking, she was free. I had not heard of that taking place. And so I wanted to learn as much about that as I could. And when I was working on my previous book, Slavery's Reach, that's how I learned about Minnesota having this system of slavery that started when it was a free territory. And then through the Dred Scott decision in 1857, it was a slave territory, but then Minnesota became a free state, but there had been so much tourism business the year before that Minnesotans decided that they would just not enforce the new free state policy when it came to the tourist. And in 1860, there were two bills that were in the Minnesota House and the Minnesota Senate, in which the proposal was for Minnesota to become a slave state only during the tourism months and only for the tourists. But both of those bills failed, but they didn't fail unanimously. So it's in that climate, only a few months after that, where Eliza Winston and the Christmases come to Minnesota. Absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm, I know that there were implications of all of these events for Minnesota politics, as well as for Eliza, obviously, but, but for Minnesota politics, too. That's right. Um, at the time that the Dred Scott decision was passed, Minnesota had people running it who were fairly tolerant of slavery. Even if they didn't want it in Minnesota, they were okay with it existing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the time Minnesota becomes a state, the first governor of Minnesota was working for slaveholders in, in St. Louis, Missouri. But then there was a new governor who was Republican in 1860, and that scared a lot of Southern Democrats. And some of them left Minnesota to go back to the South, and some of them eventually fought Minnesotans in the Civil War the following year. Mm -hmm. So Minnesota politics was very volatile when Eliza came. Wow. Again, quite a story. Thank you for sharing it. Oh, thank you very much. Christopher Lehman is a professor of ethnic studies at St. Cloud State University, the author of the book, It Took Courage, Eliza Winston's Quest for Freedom. Support comes from the EMILY program, reminding you during Eating Disorders Awareness Week that people of all ages, genders, and backgrounds can be affected by an eating disorder. If you or a loved one is struggling, find help at emilyprogram.com. Time for news. Emily Reese is with us. Emily? Hello, Kathy. Witnesses say Israeli troops fired on a large crowd of Palestinians racing to pull food off an aid convoy in Gaza City. Health officials said more than 100 people were killed. Israeli officials acknowledged that troops opened fire, saying they did so after the crowd approached in a threatening way. The officials insisted on anonymity to give details about what happened after the military said that dozens were killed and injured from pushing, trampling, and being run over. 
A wildfire spreading across the Texas panhandle has become the largest in state history. Authorities say the Smokehouse Creek fire today grew to nearly 1,700 square miles of scorched rural ranch lands and destroyed homes. The fire is merged with another blaze and is only 3 percent contained. It started Monday, and authorities haven't yet said how. At least one person has died. It's the largest of several major fires burning in the panhandle and also has crossed into Oklahoma. President Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both heading to the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas today. It's a sign of how central immigration has become in the 2024 campaign. Biden wants to hammer Republicans for tanking a bipartisan border security deal on Trump's orders. He'll go to the Rio Grande Valley city of Brownsville, where border crossings are down lately. Trump will be 300 miles away at a state park that's at the epicenter of a standoff between Texas and the federal government over enforcement. And crowds lined up in San Francisco yesterday to see, but mostly to smell, the blooming of an endangered tropical flower. The Amorphophallus titanum, known as a corpse flower, releases a pungent odor when it opens. Corpse flowers only bloom for one to three days every seven to ten years, hence the lines to smell it. A horticulturist who looks after the plant at the California Academy of Sciences says the flowers release the rotting stench to attract attention from flies on the hunt for dead carcasses, which fosters pollination. Corpse flowers are native to Sumatra. Kathy. The things you learn in this program. I Emily, know. thank I always you so try. much. <laughs> I, we appreciate it. It's 12.33. Now, we know that today, February 29th, is Leap Day. But what you might not know is it's a big day of celebration for the geocaching community. Geocaching is described as the world's largest treasure hunt and hundreds of Minnesotans are on the hunt today for caches in a tradition that uses Leap Day to make up for lost time. Joining us is an avid geocacher, Truett Johnson. He was also the former vice president of the Minnesota Geocaching Society. He's on the line. Truett, happy Hello. Leap Day to you. Happy Leap Day to you, too. Thanks for having Thanking me. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, are you taking the day off? Not to, I don't want to tell your boss anything you don't want to divulge here, <laughs> but are you, uh, are you playing hooky to go geocaching? I did take the day off today, and uh, I, I have a relatively new job, not much PTO time, but I figured I'm willing to take the day off to do to spend it on geocaching for Leap Day. That's how important it is for me. Wow. Where are you now? I'm actually sta- uh, sitting in a parking lot in Crosby Farm Park. I'm with... Uh, five other geocachers. They're actually out geocaching right now, so that way I can have the peace of mind and not them jibber-jabbering while I'm tr- on the phone here with you as well. But, um, but yeah, we, I've, we've been in the Twin Cities area all day, caching everywhere from Coon Rapids to Stillwater, and we're planning to end up in the Lakeville area. So, I mentioned that geocaching day. is like the world's largest treasure hunt. Yep. Um, And can you explain that concept? I mean, we get the concept of a treasure hunt, but how does it work when it comes to geocaching? Well, there's a joke that we use billion-dollar satellites to find Tupperware in the woods, but it's a lot more than that. There's over 3 million geocaches all around the world. There's a good chance that there's a geocache hidden less than a mile away from you in many areas that you live, um, and you wouldn't even know it. and it's really easy to actually get going with it as well. Basically, 
you can either go to the website or download the app off of the App Store, uh, create an account and a cashier name, um, click on a nearby icon, look at the difficulty rating to see if it might be an easy cash, and just follow the compass, get yourself close, and just look for something that's out of the ordinary. And once you find it, uh, sign the little paper log that's in there, um, mark it as a find on the app, and you have found your first official geocache. Are they worth anything? <laughs> the experience. <laughs> <laughs> but there, a lot of times there are bigger caches out there that might have some little trinkets in there that you might be able to trade with other uh, people and things. Um, sometimes when brand new caches do get put out, people have been known to add um, like a cash incentive to get that first defined person a little prize for being that first person to find that cash. Okay, got it. I but, got it. But really, Who? but really, it, there is no actual cash. It's C A C H E, not C A S H. So, so, so it could be anything that you might find. As you say, it's the hunt. That's the thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, how many geocaches are there in Minnesota? There must be a bunch. I believe that there's almost 10,000 in Minnesota alone. Um, and there, like I said, there's over 3 million in the world. So um, Wow. And there's a, a ton in the Twin Cities area. Okay, maybe not a ton, but you got my Enough. drift. Yes, I do. So yes. uh, so how many have you found today on this leap day? Well, our goal is to hit about 75 caches today. We're getting a little slow start on things. We have been going since 7 a.m. Uh, and we're, I think we're at about 20 to 25 at this point. But uh, the day is still somewhat young, so... And it's, the weather's not too bad. So um, just... The weather is not too bad for, I mean... <laughs> Last leap day, um, it was snow everywhere. I actually slipped on the ice and broke my phone. So I'm kind of making up for it this year with, with such beautiful weather. Well, isn't that also the reason you're doing it today, kind of making up in a sense for lost time? Is this what, because it is leap day, is that why it's such a big day for geocaching? It is. It is. Um, the fact that um, it only does come around once every four years. And basically, um, geocaching has put together um, a virtual souvenir. So if you were to find just four geocaches today or attend uh, one, uh, four events or whatever it might be, there's events going on throughout the state of Minnesota, I, I believe like a, almost a dozen of them um, throughout the state. And yeah, it... it it, you're really making up for lost time and because there it, it only does come up once every four years. I love the fact that you are out there today trying to find these geocaches. And, it, and obviously, <laughs> it's the hunt that's exciting. Um, can yeah. you give me an idea, though, as to just what spurs you on? What is it about the hunt that's intriguing to you? It's a little bit of... For me, there's, there's a lot of little things that go into it. There's the camaraderie, the fact that I'm with other people. I love to cash with friends and, and do that. But there are people that do like to cash alone as well, and more power to them. 
Um, there's the statistics side of things as well that really drives me. Um, the fact that I can see, okay, well, I found X amount of caches on this day, and I can, and there are resources out there to really track that and really drag in the the geeky people like me. I, I personally was never an outdoors person. I always thought, well, what's the purpose of a hike? You're just walking around. But the fact that I can actually go somewhere and have that experience of, wow, I found something here. I, I'm able to mark this as a find is just uh, exciting for me. And you accomplish something when you find it. I, I can see why that would be very exactly. satisfying. Yeah, I can see that. Exactly. Did you start? When did you start doing this? Uh, it's not been around all that long, has it? It's been around since May of 2000. It actually came out um, the day after the government made the change to selective availability of GPS technology, basically upgrading the accuracy of GPS technology for the common people at that point. Um, somebody in Oregon actually hid the first cache. It was known as a stash then. And published on, on the internet as it was at that time, saying that, hey, here's the coordinates for this bucket that I put out here. Come and find it. I have like a videotape and some other things in there that you could come and grab and trade and things like that. So, um, so it's been around since May of 2000. Me personally, I've really only started in 2017 and really in earnest in 2019. Um, I, I I was for the first couple of years, it was mostly just uh, on vacations and things, but I really gravitated toward it uh, five years ago, actually, this upcoming weekend um, is when I really went hog wild for the geocaching. <laughs> well, Truett, I wish you happy caching today on this big day for geocachers. I hope you enjoy yourself and thank you for telling me more about this. Thank you, and you have yourself a great leap day. I shall. You too. Truett Johnson, avid geocacher, Minnesota, spending his leap day on the hunt for caches, along with thousands of other people across the world. Programming is supported by Great River Energy, a not-for-profit wholesale electric power cooperative providing 27 Minnesota member co-ops with reliable, affordable, and cleaner electricity. More at greatriverenergy.com. Time for another episode of Thank You, Stranger, our series where Minnesotans get to tell stories of strangers who brightened their lives. Sophia Wallstrom told us about how strangers went the extra mile to help, even during a scary time. It was July of 2020, so the pandemic had just begun and the uprising had just happened and generally the vibe was tense, you know, around the cities. In the morning of July 11th, I went out for a run south down Mississippi Boulevard. There's these kind of trails that run alongside the bank. I went down this trail. Among the trail, there was, you know, sticks and logs and I was jumping over them and feeling very like powerful in, in my running ability. At one point I came across this log and I tripped on this log and I fell. And when I fell, I heard a crack. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, I really hope that that was a stick that I fell on. I tried to get up and my left leg was just completely non-usable. Just thought, 
I'm kind of screwed because when I went for runs in those days, I didn't my wallet, I didn't, I didn't have anything on me and there's no one on this trail. So as I was laying there, I just started calling out and I was like, hey, I, th- I think I broke my ankle. Can somebody help? I know there's people walking along the sidewalk. I could see them. I could see their shadows as they passed me up on the actual sidewalk of Mississippi Boulevard. Many people had already passed and heard me call out and not stopped. I think it was just because it was July of 2020, and I think we were all just on alert. Eventually, two men came down the bank, and I could tell that they were wary. There was just this sense of, I don't know, like a hesitance about the situation. And I said, hey, you know, I fell when I was running, and they picked me up, and that's when I realized that uh, something serious had happened to my leg because I couldn't put any weight on it without extreme pain. But they managed to get me back up to the sidewalk and then they deposited me on the sidewalk and one of the men had to go. So he left. And the other man was there with his wife and their son and they had been out on a morning walk. They were like, well, let me give you our phone and you can call using one of our phones. And I tried calling my sister and my dad and neither of them picked up. At that point, I, I was still just kind of like, well, thank you so much. Goodbye. Like it's, it's just in a situation like that, I didn't want to ask for help especially considering the circumstances of just the world at the moment. They said, well, you know, at the very least, we can bring you back to your apartment and see if your roommate's there. You can get your phone. So the man who had originally helped me, he started walking back to their house so he could go get their car. And then his wife and their son stayed with me. And I was leaning up against this bridge, trying not to you know, cry. <laughs> so they stayed with me and we were waiting for this woman's husband to go get their car. And while we were sitting there, a like probably eight-year-old boy ran to me from across the street and he ran up and he was like, oh, you know, what happened? And I said, oh, well, I, I fell, I might have broken my ankle. And he said, oh, do you need crutches? Do you need a boot? And I was like, I mean, I guess, I guess that would be great. And he said, well, we have one, we have a boot and we have crutches in our house. And so he ran back to the house and he came back with crutches and a boot. And then while we were sitting there waiting, he continued to like ferry things back and forth to me. I think he lived with his grandmother. She was sending him out with like a bag of grapes and a bottle of water. And people just kept stopping and and offering to help. I I was actually feeling just so warm, despite the fact that I had a, a broken leg and was just sitting there. Eventually, the man came back around with the car. They offered to drive me all the way out to Egan and bring me to the orthopedics place. And then they stopped at the Caribou Coffee on uh, Grand and Snelling and got me a coffee. And then they drove me all the way out to Egan. I found out while I was there that I'd broken my leg. I ended up having to get surgery. I was on bed rest for like a month. And I never found out who these people were. (laughs) Um, They just took two hours out of their morning and just took care of someone that they had never known. Like, it was just this incredibly scary time. It was really hard to be around people, much less strangers. I've always just wanted to thank them. It was so immensely helpful, and I have no idea what I would have done. That was produced that was by our a own. a moment that really made me feel a lot of hope about people and a lot of hope about humanity, and that even though it was only a few hours, it's just a little, a little glint of, of hope. That was produced by our own Ellen Finn for our series called Thank You, Stranger. If you want to share a story of kindness from a stranger or even a friend, this series, we want to hear it, of course, call us at 612-361-1252 or email us at minnesotanow at mpr.org.
If you've been paying any attention to basketball lately, college basketball, you've heard the name Caitlin Clark. Last night's game against the Gophers, the Iowa Hawkeyes player scored eight three-pointers, 33 points, and 10 rebounds. She's generated a lot of love for women's college basketball this year in pursuit of NCAA scoring records. She beat the women's record last night and came 18 points away from beating the all-time scoring record. Her next chance at that is this Sunday's game against Ohio State. So it's super special, you know, closing in on that. And, you know, I my first goal is, you know, focusing on Ohio State and beating them, but it's super special just to be in the same realm of a lot of these really talented players that have done a lot of really great things for, you know, not just men's basketball or just women's basketball, but just basketball in general. Joining us to talk about last night's game and all things Minnesota sports is Wally Langfellow and Eric Nelson, our sports guys. Wally's the founder of Minnesota Scorer Magazine and the co-host of the 10,000 Takes Sports Talk Show. Eric's the other host of that show and the Vikings reporter for CBS Sports Radio. Well, uh, did y'all see the Caitlin Clark experience at the barn, Wally? Or Eric, whoever uh, went? Well, I don't think either one of us. I know I didn't go. I went to the Timberwolves. Eric didn't oh. go either. But but we, look, here's my reasoning behind it, Kathy, and I'll let Eric expound on what happened last night. Um, as much as I wanted to see Caitlin Clark, and I saw her last year um, at Target Center, but as much as I want to see it, I really didn't want to sit with 13,000 and a half Iowa fans. That's just to me that there's just no attraction to that at all. <laughs> just not. Okay. That's, Duly I'm noted. Sorry. Duly noted. All right, Eric. <laughs> well, Party pooper. Well, all right, Eric, what did you think? Well, it's hard not to be impressed. First of all, it was a border beatdown. Iowa is the sixth ranked team in the nation. And the final score was ugly if you're a Gopher fan, 108 to 60. Caitlin Clark is a rock star. She's the Michael Jordan of women's college basketball. And she did put on a show before a jam packed crowd of 14,625 at the barn in Dinkytown. This is just the second time ever the U of M women have packed the barn. And as you said in the lead in, uh, Kathy, she sank eight three balls, a lot of them from another zip code. I mean, she goes deep past that three-point line, almost to the logo, and she launches and she connects. So she had 33 points in the game. She's up to 36.50 in her brilliant career. Uh, She surpasses Kansas legend Lynette Woodard for number one on the all-time scoring list. She also broke the NCAA women's single-season three-point record, She's got 156 this year and 503 in her career. And she and the Hawkeyes will be back in the Twin Cities for the Big Ten Women's Tournament next week at Target Center. The event is completely sold out. And you can thank Caitlin Clark for that buzz because wherever she goes, people want to be there. Uh, And one other gopher note too, Kathy, the men's team played uh, last night in Champaign, Illinois at State Farm Center. And they lost to the 13th-ranked Illini, 105-97. to Terrence Shannon Jr. paced Illinois with 29. Dawson Garcia and Cam Christie had strong games for Minnesota. The Gophers need to win probably two more regular season games and a couple in the Big Ten tournament at Target Center if they want to get into the NCAA tournament. If not, they'll probably be in the NIT. Hmm. Okay. 
All right. Well, uh, it was fun watching Caitlin. That's all I'm going to say. All right. We're going to move on because Wally was at the Timberwolves game. Uh, what of the Wolves? Uh, there were no Iowa fans there. <laughs> we can report. That was, just, that was too easy. Uh, no, they played They played fairly well last night. Um, they got off to a really slow start. They trailed 14 to nothing. And Timberwolves fans, I don't know if you've been to a Wolves game this year, um, they've built a little tradition here where they they all stand until the Wolves score their first basket. Well, there was a few minutes that went by in the first quarter before <laughs> they were able to actually take their seats. Uh, so it, it did not look good early, but they won the basketball game. Anthony Edwards had 34 points. Nas Reed had 19 for the Timberwolves. Minnesota has now won three in a row, seven of eight. Um, the Wolves have a half game lead over Oklahoma City in the West for the best record in the West. And Friday night, they are back home. This is part of a seven-game homestand, oh, by the way. They'll play Sacramento on Friday, and then they've got the Clippers on Sunday afternoon. So this homestand continues on, but it's important for them to keep winning these home games. The only loss in this homestand thus far has been to a very good Milwaukee team uh, last Friday night. So Hmm. things are looking good. No injuries of any significance to report. That's the main thing. Okay. Well, you know, uh, Eric, I'm so excited about the Combine, uh, as you know. (laughs) Kathy, I know you're into, you know, some some shtick stuff and getting yourself uh, going viral. I thought you'd be on a Combine, a John Deere tractor driving down to Indy for this thing, but I guess you're still in Minnesota. But uh, yeah, it's the NFL Olympics where they run, they jump, they bench press. It's so weird. And they do just about everything but play football. But the Minnesota Vikings and 31 other teams are down there in Indianapolis at the Combine. It takes place at Lucas Oil Stadium, the home of the Colts. Uh, Viking coaches are kicking the tires on 321 prospects who are at the uh, annual event. Trade rumors are swirling. Uh, Quezzi Adolfo Mensa, the Vikings general manager, says he has not even thought about peddling wide receiver Justin Jefferson, but he does want a megabucks payday. Jefferson wants to get uh, a lot of loot from the Vikings. The salary cap's now up to $255 million. Maybe that can happen. Hmm. And according to the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Minnesota is going to travel to Cleveland for joint practices during training camp, which means that Wally Langfellow now has his summer plans Nice. <laughs> Already on the books because those are his two favorite teams. And I don't what a think relief. he's going to do any work at this joint practice, Kathy. So don't I count on imagine. him then because his beloved Brownies and the Vikings will all be together. Kumbaya in Ohio. <laughs> I can hardly wait. I'm sure Wally's very excited. Now, I personally, oh, yeah. by the way, speaking of excitement, I love the Boys State Hockey Tournament, which is right around the corner. It is. Mr. It Langfell. starts... Yes, it starts on Wednesday of next week. Several teams qualified with wins last night. Uh, Elk River and Edina both win last night. The Hornets, oh, by the way, beating top-seeded Wyzetta in Section 6. Elk River beat Buffalo in Class A. Orono knocked off Minneapolis 4-1, to so Orono is going back. The other winners in Class A that advanced to the state tournament, no surprise here, Hermantown, no surprise here, St. Cloud Cathedral. Uh, Northfield and New Ulm are all in with wins last night. Now, tonight... In Class AA, defending state champion Minnetonka will play against Chanhassen. The winner there goes to state. 
Maple Grove takes on Centennial. The winner there goes to state. And Andover plays Grand Rapids in Duluth at Amsoil Arena. And Lakeville South is down in Rochester to play Rochester Century. So all the winners tonight also advance to the Class AA tournament. So, yeah, we're right around the corner. we got a few qualifiers, and the rest will be decided tonight and tomorrow. All right. I hope you guys have a good weekend. Enjoy the weather whiplash, Kathy. We shall. Thank you, Wally Langfellow and Eric Nelson, our sports guys. That is it for us on Minnesota Now this week. It was a long week. Our senior producer, Alisa Kuznetsov. Our producers are Alana Elder, Ellen Finn, and CJ Younger. Our technical director today, Jess Berg. And the theme music you're listening to composed by Minnesota-based musicians Abby Wolf and Joe Horton. Thank you, Abby and Joe. And thank you for listening to Minnesota Now this week. Check out the podcast. Support comes from standard heating and air conditioning. Winter brings on issues like dry skin, nosebleeds, and more. Standard Heating is dedicated to improving your home comfort with custom whole-home humidification solutions. Learn how at standardheating.com. Say, just heard from the Minneapolis Fire Department. They are responding to a fire at an encampment at 1105 East 28th Street, and they're asking folks if you're in Minneapolis to avoid the area because they're trying to put that fire out. This is NPR News 91.1 KNOW Minneapolis, St. Paul. Weather, not a story really. It's pretty quiet. 34 degrees, sunny skies. But Eric mentioned this about the weather whiplash that is definitely coming uh, starting probably tomorrow. Sunny skies tomorrow and windy with a high of 58. We're going to be around 60 on Saturday. 70 on Sunday with rain.